On this episode, Matthew Mitchell, a senior research fellow and director of the Equal Liberty Initiative here at Mercatus, chats about the latest economic situation report with Dr. Bruce Yandel, who is a distinguished adjunct fellow here at Mercatus. They discuss inflation, gas and oil prices, the possibility of a recession, and much more. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Well, welcome, Bruce. It's great to chat with you again. Always, Matt, and plenty to talk about. Yes, that's true. So let's get right into it. I think the first thing that's on a lot of people's minds are prices. Can you walk us through what's going on with price changes and particularly how they relate to imports from China, how they relate to recovering from COVID and consumer durables? What is the picture that emerges there? Well, there's, there's now a official recognition that the inflation that we are experiencing, which is certainly very evident to all of us as consumers, that this inflation is not transitory. It is not something that's just associated with supply chain problems, but it's endemic, and that says it's monetary. When Janet Yellen, Secretary of Treasury, testifies that, hey, this situation is far more serious than I first thought it might be, and she had the courage, uh, and I congratulate her for being able to say, I was wrong when I said that inflation was not going to be a serious problem this year and next. Uh, It's a rare thing when a high-ranking official has the courage to say, I made a mistake, I was wrong. It certainly is encouraging for the prospects for better policy, I would add. But the inflation we have now is endemic, and that says that a large part of it is monetary, not all of it, but a part of it is monetary, And that says that any solution that comes will have to come from the central bank. And that's in the works. So we have a a mood that is uh, somewhat very similar to what we saw back in the late 70s when Gerald Ford comes into office, sometimes uh, denoted as the accidental president, and pushes with his slogan, whip inflation now. It was during that period of time that the term stagflation entered our vocabulary. We had an economy then that was slowing down, but with high inflation. We have an economy now that is slowing down, certainly with high inflation, approaching the numbers that we saw back in the late 70s. And then it became a monetary phenomenon. So we do have some similarities, but some major differences, too, that I think you and I might might talk about a bit as we consider what's going on out here. Oh, that's great. So let's start with whip inflation now. What was President Ford's strategy to break the back of inflation, and did it work? Well, I would say that uh, there's something that we can learn from that period. I happen to have been a participant in some of that. But one of the first things that President Ford did was to instruct his Secretary of Commerce to hold hearings nationwide in small towns and big cities, basically asking, what can we do to get our economy sort of straightened out and producing and operating again and countering inflationary forces? I participated in hearings in Columbia, South Carolina during that period. And then I later joined the staff of the Council on Wage and Price Stability, 
uh, which had a small unit that focused on regulatory reform. And so one of the things that President Ford decided to push, in addition to trying to get taxes down, was working on the supply side of the economy. In other words, let's see if we can't loosen things up, reduce some regulatory constraints, and get the economy operating with a little more freedom than was existing at the time. And that set in force uh, motion activities that led to major deregulation of surface transportation, the elimination of the Civil Aeronautics Board, elimination of regulating fares for flying, and major deregulation in the financial sector. Most of that did not happen during his term of office, but the motion was started. The gear started turning. Some of the big changes occurred during the Carter administration and even later. But in any case, uh, something that we might consider again, how can we free up this economy and get some limbering of free market forces again that will give us some relaxation of inflationary pressures mm -hmm. and also produce a little faster growth in real GDP. Now, one of the things when I think back on that period, and you're going to have to educate me here because my knowledge is is what I see in textbooks. Uh, you lived it and you were part of the, some of these decision-making some of what we know about whip inflation now are, uh, I think we kind of poke fun of it. Uh, you know, we've got these win buttons and the idea was if everybody buys a button that says whip inflation, now we're going to turn things around. Uh, and that's sort of silly. But, you know, what you talk about in terms of uh, freeing up supply, it occurs to me that there is a lot of benefit for that. You know, there were tons of inefficiencies, inequities built into the way, you know, airlines were regulated. By some estimates, the cost of air travel is about half of what it was during the regulated era. This is one reason why, if you think back culturally, flying was something that people got dressed up for is because it was really uh, something that was only uh, available to the ultra rich. So, you know, I think back at that time, a majority of Americans had never flown, whereas today a majority of Americans fly in a typical year. Okay, so we, we made those changes. But one of the things that I kind of wonder about that is if you believe Milton Friedman's idea that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon, I can't help but wonder if those types of regulatory changes, helpful though they may have been, were probably not all that helpful at whipping inflation. Is that fair? Yes, I think it is, but it was a loosening up. I think ultimately, uh, and, and you and I have talked about this before, in a way it's sort of strange. The word inflation talks about, it refers to inflating the money supply. Mm -hmm. That's where the word comes from. And it's sort of interesting that uh, in the current period, there's a big debate as to whether inflation is a monetary phenomenon or not. Even the word itself is referring to growth in the money supply. And we've had a remarkably high growth rate of our measured money supply in the last couple of years. It is still high. And as long as we have more money being printed, chasing a limited supply of goods, we will inevitably see price increases across the board. And that's what we're getting now. But in addition to that, of course, We've got interruptions in the flow of petroleum products. We can point to the Russia-Ukraine invasion. We have other factors. And something that is uh, almost bugging to me, Matt, is, 
and I coined a phrase the other day in something I was writing. I refer to our country now as a fourth world nation. I first thought, well, if we can't produce baby food Mm -hmm. and and get something in a sense as simple, and I don't mean to, to, to emphasize that, but relative to all of the things we do produce, something as simple as food for infants, if we as a nation cannot reliably produce that, what on earth have we become? And, mm-hmm. and so we have become a highly regulated economy. The question then surfaces, well, why was it illegal for baby food to cross our national borders in the first place? That it took a president's executive order to make it possible for the United States Department of Defense to fly baby food across the border so that young infants have something to eat tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So here we are incredibly wealthy uh, as people uh, with a remarkably high level of living, but with shortages of baby food, with warnings that are coming out that we're going to have brownouts across the country this summer, warning people, get ready. We cannot produce electricity reliably anymore. We've got that. And then you and I could list other things that are sort of strange that are going on. Uh, Each one of them has to do with addressing a crisis as named by our politicians and an effort to intervene in the economy. So, So that now we are, for instance, saying, We want to go with solar energy, but by the way, we've got horrendous tariffs on solar cells. Well, does that make sense? No, but it makes sense on some basis. And as much as some special interest group has made an appeal and received some special relief. But as you begin to list these things, we begin to lose sight of what used to be a kind of normal economy that responded to demand. Prices would go up, and rising prices were a prelude to plenty. When people would say, well, what's the remedy for rising prices? And the answer was rising prices. That sends the signal, and more people start producing. And what do you know? More baby food, more electricity. Wages go high. More people cross borders to come to work. But now we're in a world where because of regulatory constraints, those things just don't work that way anymore. Well, and also it's helpful maybe to distinguish here between rising relative prices versus general price increase. So, you know, a rising relative price in oil, for example, sends a signal to consumers to economize on their consumption of oil. It sends a signal to producers to find alternative ways to meet this consumer demand, and it encourages people to adjust. But if every price in the economy rises, then the signaling value of a price change is absent, right? Because, you know, there's no shifting out of oil or, or gas into some other type of uh, consumption doesn't really make much sense because the other types of consumption are also more expensive. Is that right? Yes. And, and you, make a, you make a very important point, I think, Matt, the difference between relative price changes and the price level rising, which is a change. But for the individual, those differences are sort of indistinguishable. In both cases, mm-hmm. The individual consumer sees a bigger number on the gasoline pump or in the grocery store, 
and attempts to change his or her behavior on the basis of those larger numbers. But the relative price change is the important one for triggering more supply, but it gets disguised by inflation, and the signals then are distorted. They're more difficult to interpret. And so producers make bad decisions because of bad information. They may be thinking they are responding to a relative price change, which is saying produce more, Mm -hmm. but it really is inflation, and they still try to produce more because that's the signal that they got. Then that leads to excess inventories and other distortions that enter the economy that will require some later adjustments. And so the entire signaling mechanism gets goofed up. From their consumer's perspective, there's another way that the signaling mechanism gets goofed up, which is when you start incorporating ideas about expectations. So if you know, you're know you in the market for durable good like a new washing machine uh, or a new dryer, as my wife and I are unfortunately in the market for, um, you know, and you could maybe make do for a little while. If you are worried about inflation rising and being, you know, the price of this dryer being far more expensive in 12 months or 24 months, then that encourages you to go out and buy it right now. So itself, you can see how these, how inflation can get self-reinforcing and it has to do with, you know, this is sort of where economics bleeds into other social sciences. You know, it has to do with human expectations and predictions and cultural attitudes about what should happen with prices and what and whether, you know, cost of living adjustments should be built into wage increases and all of that. But you can start to see how it becomes, if you read the way people talked about inflation in the 70s, they talked about it as sort of this like moral crisis, this cultural crisis. It had, it wasn't just economics, it had to do with all sorts of other things. Is that fair? That's true. And I remember quite well, uh, many discussions, debate, presentations, and so forth during that period of the whip inflation now. Uh, and and it was something of a joke, as you mentioned, that, that somehow we Americans, if enough of us put those buttons on our jackets, <laughs> uh, would, would, would turn the economy around. But there was a moral element to it that people raised. The fact that when you lose confidence in your currency and its continued value as a store of value, then that changes your behavior as a human being. And part of being honest with each other in our relationships, economic and otherwise, requires honest money. That was part mm-hmm. of the discussion that was going on back in that day. And so the, the old statement, the dollar should be good as gold, all of that disappeared when the gold cover disappeared for the dollar. And mm-hmm. it's, it's no longer a relevant part of our discussion. But you're right. It was certainly part of the discussion at that time, but Mm -hmm. something that uh, is included in this economic situation report that you and I are talking about this June issue that has come out is an examination of phenomenon, a huge increase in demand that shows up for durable goods, particularly you were talking about the washing machine purchase, right? Uh, But when we ordinary folks began to get those checks in our bank accounts, uh, courtesy of the federal government, those big checks started rolling in and they kept rolling in. 
And after a while, collectively, there was about two and a half trillion dollars that had been printed and sent out to our bank accounts. Uh, when those, when the money started showing up, we did what consumers always do. Hey, let's save some of this and let's spend some of this. And at the time we go back, it was the time of the COVID shutdown. So, so we couldn't go out for dinner. We couldn't shop. We couldn't travel. So what could we do? We could buy durable goods. We could trade in the pickup truck, or we could say it's the time to rebuild the kitchen, or we could get another washing machine and dryer, another dishwasher. And so there was a massive increase in the effort to satisfy our demand. I'm speaking like a 250% increase wow. in, yeah. the, in the production of some of these categories over a short period of time. Now, something else that happens uh, as we went out shopping for more consumer goods, durable goods, as well as non-durable goods, a lot of those goods came from China. And so when I show data in this report on imports to the United States from China, we see another mountain that gets built in association with these checks that came into our bank accounts. And so suddenly there's about a 200% increase in the shipment of goods from China to American ports. And so all of a sudden the ports get all clogged up. Mm -hmm. And then that calls for action to the White House. Hey, do something about our ports. We can't unload our ships. Must be something wrong there without necessarily looking to see, well, what stimulated all this in the first place? Uh, there was a massive increase in an effort to produce automobiles and component parts for automobiles. With that stimulus money, that disappeared as the stimulus money eased. But then we have shortages of semiconductors, and it's almost as if the world just no longer works the way it ought to work. Right, right. And, and some of it can be attributed to that sudden surge in demand that was triggered by a nice increase in printing press money that came into our checking accounts. And Matt, a lot of that money is still sitting in those accounts, which is another way of saying inflation isn't going away anytime soon. Now, this isn't specifically addressed in your report, but there are some who look at this same data and make the argument that, you know, the problem here isn't necessarily COVID or COVID policies that caused us to shift from perishables to durables. It isn't the big stimulus checks. The big problem is that we've is concentration. We've we've become so you know reliant on uh, you know only a few producers of whether it's baby formula or dryers that when those producers go offline it causes disruptions. What do you what do you make of that argument? I think that there's a valid point to be made which in a sense goes back to my calling it a fourth world country. Mm -hmm. uh, part of this, part of the, I mean, when we look at changes that have occurred in the structures of industries, uh, which is the language that you and I use in, in economics as we talk about concentration, how many suppliers are there? What is the competitiveness of the industry? To what extent are ports open so that import competition can come in readily? that will discipline the behavior of domestic producers. When we, when we look at that category of data, we have to step back and say the structure of American industry has indeed changed. Things are far more rigid than they once were. 
we are not as competitive as we once were. That does give latitude for producers to respond lackadaisically, less urgently, more comfortably when they encounter increases in demand, it's possible for them to earn more profits for a longer period of time than would be the case if that industry were more competitive as it might have been in the past. Mm -hmm. That gets us then to review, well, what are our antitrust policies and what is our relative degree of openness for world trade? Are we reducing tariffs and opening the door or are we closing it more tightly? And I think it is the latter right now as we look at what is going on. But there is a tendency to look for something to blame, to blame the oil companies because the price of gasoline has gone up or to blame the poultry producers or the beef packers because the price of meat has gone up. There's some blame to be placed there. but It takes an increase in demand, a sustained increase in demand, to get the responses that we are observing in terms of prices and price level. Right. Well, and and again, as as you and I have talked about many times, and I think most economists will be familiar with this argument, but you know, the idea of blaming a change in prices or inflation on uh, you know a change in human nature doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, the humans were just as rational and self-interested two years ago as they are today, and grocery stores and gas station owners were just as profit-seeking two years ago as they were today if they could have gotten more two years ago than they would have. And consumers are rational and self-interested too. You know, we want lower prices. (laughs) And so uh, the real question is, what is making a difference today? And I think your your report helps us better understand that, and it's it's very helpful. What, one other thing I want to highlight here that I think may be a part of this story, which is something that really goes back to Adam Smith and Karl Marx, which is the the role of specialization and complexity as markets evolve and tasks get more and more complex and people get more specialized and companies get more specialized, it does, you know, end up being sometimes that adjustments can be more difficult. And this was something Adam Smith you know, recognized, acknowledged was a was a concern. Karl Marx took it and ran with it. But Smith had an answer to it as well, which was, you know, one way to mitigate things is back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is prices and price signals that help us make those adjustments. There's also another way to, to adjust it, which is for employers to be mindful of the fact that sometimes over-specialization can be, in Marx's words, alienating, right? It can make tasks too routine and too sort of dulling. And so it is up to a good manager to mix things up and cause people to, to try to generalize a little bit. What do, you, what do you make of that? One of the quotations from Adam Smith, which is one of my favorites, the division of labor is limited to the extent of the market. And so as markets went global in the last 30 years, generally speaking, as globalization took hold, as borders opened, as more export and import activity began to be generated, then, as you're pointing out, it was possible to find ultimate economies of scale in many, many dimensions of production as well as consumption. And so we become more and more specialized And as we become more specialized, in a way, then we become more vulnerable to changes that might cause the doors to close that previously had opened so widely. And 
as, as the doors begin to close and the movements of people and goods begin to be interrupted, now we find ourselves at a disadvantage. We have become specialized in a world that where we now need to be more generalized. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little bit of that, maybe a good bit of that going on right now. COVID has changed a lot in terms of our thinking along these lines. That is, uh, when people began to realize that uh, the United States doesn't produce enough protective garments for hospital workers, that we've been importing this, there was a tendency to say, well, that's terrible. We ought to be able to produce our own hospital garments and ventilators. You mean we've been importing some of those? And you can go on down the list. Then there got to be a concern that We would not be able to produce enough military vehicles in the event of another world war. And so that says that the auto industry needs to be protected a little bit more. These arguments continue to go and the division of labor limited to the extent of the market gets turned the other way. And we lose the gains of specialization as those doors close. That seems to be the mood of the country now that you and I have talked about before movement of people as well as movement of goods, uh, more of a tendency to let's try to be self-sufficient and let's try to do business only with people who sort of think the way we think, maybe people who look the way we look or speak our same language, they will be preferred first. Mm -hmm. Uh, A tendency to reverse some of the gains that have occurred over many, many decades, if not centuries. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because if you just think of basic, you know, exchange, people have more to gain from exchange with people who are different from them. If their consumption sets are different, if their production abilities are different, there's greater gains from exchange. I, I agree with you as we, unfortunately, as, when nations tend to close down their trade, they're f- far more likely to close down trade with countries with uh, radically different cultures and languages and experiences than they are with uh, similar countries. So that does not bode well. Um, and yet y- you begin your report and you end your report on a note of optimism. So uh, m- maybe let's finish there uh, as we wrap up the conversation. Tell us why you're optimistic. Well, probably one of the reasons that I became a little more optimistic as I was developing this report was because I started off being rather pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, when, when you think about we can't get baby food, electricity, brownouts, on and on, we can, we can go back through that laundry list again mm-hmm. and say, well, what have we lost our minds? So we, we don't seem to be able to do things that just were ordinarily normally done in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I just happened to stumble on a book that someone had given to me years ago. I was reading the preface to the book and the preface to the book was, and the book was a publication of 1978. The the preface begins, Norman Cousins, a well-known writer at the time was basically saying, these are terrible times. It never has been as miserable as this. (laughs) Uh, And and, uh, that caught my attention. And so I thought, well, let me go back and look there in 1980. So I said, I'm going to set 1980 as as a point of departure. I'm going to look at data around 1980, see what was going on. And gee whiz, the Dow Jones average was at 963, you know, versus Mm 32,000 now. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
real per capita income was $25,000 versus $54,000 now. And I began to look at other things uh, in that 1980s period. There was an attempt at that time, and not just an attempt, we had imposed embargoes on wheat from the United States to Russia because Russia had invaded Afghanistan, you know, something else. Oh, that sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was an effort to shut down participation in the Olympics that year because of Russia's behavior. And I thought, wow, this is really beginning to sound familiar. But as I looked at the 1980s, the late 1970s, compared to where we are now, of course, you see a staggering amount of progress in so many dimensions of life. And so, in a sense, I guess we could cut back to any layer of history and we would find a situation where the old folks all say the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know what this younger generation is coming to, uh, a familiar sound. But then when we look at the drift, we say, wow, we've got a lot to celebrate and we've got a lot to work on too to make it even better. There's reasons to be optimistic. Well, on that note, I'm optimistic as well over the long run. And I think some of that optimism comes from getting to learn from you. Thank you so much for your time today. Please check out Bruce Yandel's latest economic situation report published in June 2022 by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thank you so much, Bruce. Fun talking with you, Matt. The Mercatus Policy Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. And for even more, follow us on Twitter at Mercatus. Mercatus.